Well, you're listening to Quad Dot Rocks, God the World and Other Things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, you've got it, advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. This is Season 18, Episode 391. This is the audio portion of our YouTube channel show, Other Things With, and this is featuring Other Things with Bennett Moon. It runs for two hours. The YouTube channel is normally at least an hour if the artist or person I'm talking to wants to go further and God's working in the midst of all of that, we'll go further. And so with Bennett, we went for two hours and it was a wonderful time. And I hope that you'll enjoy it just as much as I enjoyed doing this. But this is other things with Bennett Moon. Bennett Moon is a modern day Renaissance woman. She's the director of productions and artist services at Worldwide Stages, the premier production campus of the world's entertainment industry. And believe it or not, it's located right here in my hometown of Spring Hill, Tennessee, which is a suburb of Nashville, and it's at the southern part of the burgeoning Nashville Metropolitan Hub. Bennett holds expertise in everything from audio engineering to world tour production management for international musical artists. Her university education, advanced degrees and studies at both the master's degree level, the training in Austria, multiple advanced certifications in sound engineering and reinforcement, coupled with her interpersonal relationship skills and management savvy, places her at the top tier of people in her industry. Her story will encourage and inspire you to be all the best that you can be without excuses or apologies. I also remind you, if you want to see the show in video form, just go to youtube.com forward slash the at symbol, other things with dot, dot, dot. So it's youtube.com forward slash the at symbol, other things with dot, dot, dot. And that will take you to the home base for the video show. So anyway, without further ado, isn't that such a cliche statement? But without further ado, here's other things with Bennett Moon. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to Other Things with Bennett Moon. I'm Kenny Price, your host, and I am so excited to have Bennett on the show today. And I'm going to give a background on her in just a minute. But let me, first of all, just say, hey, Bennett, welcome to the show. Honor. Very much. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, I want to give a little background on how I came to get to know Bennett uh, because it's an interesting journey. We have a new production facility here in Spring Hill, Tennessee, and it's called the Worldwide Stages. And there was talk about this coming, uh, but just as Bennett and I were talking about before coming live, uh, concerned about some municipality needs of improvement. One of them is communication because there's a nonprofit organization here in Spring Hill called The Well, and they're promoting and doing a good job of it, of a fundraiser that's coming to uh, Worldwide Stages here in Spring Hill. And, but it said, you know, Michael W. Smith. And I thought, well, if they're having Michael W. Smith, it's got to be a venue big enough. And I thought, I don't know of any theaters here in Spring Hill. So I started doing the research on that and found out, oh, the facility opened up 30,000 square feet of uh, production space, yeah. both recording and uh, video production. And so then I started looking at, okay, who's running this thing? And that's when Bennett's name came up. And then I started investigating her. So Bennett, uh, tell us what you're doing right now uh, at, uh, I keep forgetting this, at Worldwide Stages here in Spring Hill. Well, so it's gone, it's, it was, uh, a lot of people will remember this, um, there was a car brand and it was uh, Saturn and it was part of the GM family and they started that in 1988 up in Michigan, right? So then this car brand expanded 
they needed a headquarters for it. And what they did uh, was uh, look throughout the nation on where they could put a plant and a, and a headquarters so that it was kind of the new way that they wanted to do um, branding of their vehicles, of their, of their, you know, of their family of, of, of brand names. And so GM, uh, you know, came down here, put up, built a big factory and put a headquarters. It's 350,000 square feet, two stories, basically seven connected buildings. Um, there is several parts of the headquarters. It was all in one. It was different than what GM had ever done. And and when I say all in one is that they had, they built this building to be both administrative, all, all in house, everything that the dealers, every dealer um, organization had their liaison in this place. Um, the billing, the, they had, they built an in-house studio. So every car commercial, like all the audio recording for any new upgrades that the vehicles would do that they would send out in CDs to the, to the dealerships, um, uh, everything all the way to, like I said, all from, from the execs all the way up to, uh, to the people that trained the individuals to go to work on the cars and then sent them across the highway, which is Beechcroft basically behind there. It's now just a GM did keep retain the actual major facility of manufacturing that Saturn was, but they offshoot offshooted the headquarters of 350,000 square feet, several production, several production of vehicles. So these were warehouses that have varying degrees of internal steel built into them. Um, and that's where they would take, you know, people to train them on every part of the car from the transmission, the alter, you know, everything about how to work on these cars. They train them there and then send them either, you know, to the plant or somewhere else to do, you know, to do work for these for these Saturn vehicles. The the building when the fall of the financial crisis happened, GM shut down Oldsmobile and Saturn. They, you know, got rid of those brands. So by 2010, this building was sitting empty. Um, and, and it basically sat empty for since 2010 until, uh, S Spring Hill did when it was growing so much in the early 2010s, they thought, Hey, we could bring all of our, our city board, you know, the board of, uh, elders and alders, aldermen and, and the mayors and all that, the print, the police station, they were all going to bring it all under one roof and put it in this building. So Spring Hill bought it. Then they couldn't get it going because there's so much infrastructure that needed to be upgraded. And it was costing basically the same as them just building their own police stations, their own libraries, their own city halls, and everything kind of sunk again. And so about 2015, 2016, it was mostly 80% empty. Uh, and that's when it went into disrepair. Uh, like, obviously, that's a huge building to maintain. And in comes some, you know, angel investors, uh, some, uh, it's called Valiant Family Wealth Management, uh, Valiant Family Wealth Management Corporation, which is a group of very wealthy, very wealthy people that like to see their money be used in the entertainment world, whether that is, you know, in production or actual, you know, software, hardware, and, and a couple of like celebrities, local celeb, well, local and you know, well, international, but celebrities that have called Middle Tennessee home. So uh, that was an amazing opportunity for these two founders, Mark Long and Shane Ellis, to uh, 
also acquired the help of a lawyer from Nashville named Kelly Frey, who is still the current uh, CEO. And those three guys uh, said, we're going to do this. And they needed people to do to help to help run it. And um, I, through many ways, I connected uh, in 2020. I started, they really bought it in 21, 2021. And in 2020, I had actually toured the building because uh, and met Shane and Mark Long. Um, and Shane Ellis and I actually went to the same engineering school uh, and 20 years apart, but we had alumni had known each other in that, in sort of in that way and connected. And, and I was living in Georgia still, and I had always grown up, you know, I'd grown up here. I'm still very connected to the area, even if I uh, did maintain a career that got me across the world many times and, and kept me uh, gone a lot. But I, I kind of always knew that I was looking forward to seeing how I might either come locally to Nashville or I mean, even Columbia. So that's, that was, that was how it, 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 it all came to fruition because they said, Hey, we need a director of production. We need someone to help us take this car manufacturing facility. And we need to make it into a production facility. And during the pandemic, uh, I had been working a lot in Atlanta. I lived in it and lived in Atlanta as well. And so, uh, I had been working cause that was some of the only things that were post-production work was being done during a lot of the shutdown is that the movies like Marvel television and all those, they were, as long as you were vaccinated, you could go back to work, uh, because they were deemed, you know, some of those shows were, you know, being able to kept small sets. But, uh, so I was working already down there for film and television and, um, and which was a wonderful experience for me because I'd been mostly doing, um, you know, live music, entertain, you know, live, like touring, recording and audio and live entertainment and system buildings for arenas. So it was an amazing opportunity for me to do it. So I, when I was doing that for a year and then they said, Hey, would you come up here? Cause we want to make this basically everything I had touched on so far in my career, which I was such a, it was such a blessing. And it was in my home County, right? It, I mean, Mary County, uh, it, I thought maybe I'd work in Nashville, but it was just an amazing opportunity. Um, and I accepted it. And so since 2021, up until about the major, the major, it took, oh man, it's a big building. So it took a long time uh, to determine what parts of those uh, big warehouse rooms were going to be what we use for production sound stages um, and how to convert those on, you know, appropriate, still doing supply chain issues, right? Like the amount of, the amount of black paint that we needed, because that's what you really need when you have when you have, you know, black paint, you, that's what you need as a soundstage. You really just need, and if you look at most of the venues like arena if, or theaters, you know, if, unless it's the beautiful theaters of time, you know, times past, like the vaudeville theaters that are intricately decorated with, you know, plaster of Paris, but for the most part, any newly built, uh, you know, whether it's an arena shed amphitheater, uh, or, or redone small, small theater, they're going to be all in black and it, it, the amount of paint we needed, it just took so long. And so it took about two years from 2021 to 2023, beginning of it to get that uh, work done. But now um, there are several sound stages and they have bought or they acquired during the sale of it, the 22 acres around the building too. So uh, the funding is 
going again, you've probably seen some of the signs about, you know, investing in it is that really that's what it is. It's that instead of taking these buildings that we have been blessed to have and to, and converted them, but they're still not purpose-made sound stages. So could it be better? Oh yeah, always. So how to get there? It takes money. So um, what I've been doing recently is really making sure that after the ba- build has happened and the renovation or the, the rebuild of what was there into a soundstage um, and that conversion of the production of manufacturing facility to a production facility is is maintaining the, the acts and the artists and the productions, whether it be music, events, television series. We had a, a wonderful opportunity to work with uh, Reese Witherspoon with her Hello Sunshine company. Uh, they did a series with uh, Casey Musgraves, My Kind of Country, which aired on Apple TV. Uh, Netflix has come in and done things. Nicole Kidman shot um, her part of the movie that I guess might come out later this year. I think it's a, it's a horror sci-fi film, not sci-fi, but I think like eerily, not horror, but it's called Holland, Michigan. And um, so Nicole Kidman spent a lot of time um, shooting her post-production work there. And, and, and most recently I'd say I have to, you know, give a lot of credit to CMT. Uh, CMT has, uh, you know, these syndicated TV shows. Uh, You have storytellers, you have uh, CMT Crossroads, um, and then you have some specials, right? The CMA Awards and CMT Awards, and um, the CM, you know, the CMT Viacom, which is like the bigger brand, you know, the major Viacom owns everything from like Comedy Central all the way to you know, well, CMT and then BET and all those. So CMT has uh, used us consistently um, for the for the productions of what they have. Um, for storytellers and crossroads. So we've had, um, Darius Rucker. We had, we did, a uh, um, uh, what is it? What was the last one? Um, oh, guns, uh, poison, uh, Ac- not Axel Rose. My goodness. Uh, Brett Michaels from poison. Oh man. Brett Michaels. Yeah. Yeah. did a crossover. Uh, and then, you know, Brooks and Dunn and, uh, we had Thomas Rhett and Casey, uh, Thomas Rhett. And, um, when not Kelly Clarkson, um, I'm blanking on it, but they did a, they did a, a, a country and a pop crossover and Carrie Underwood is one of the, um, you know, uh, investors. And so she has shot all of her rhinestones, uh, album music videos shots. We've been really lucky to have both, you know, television, TV, music come together in this place. We're still learning. We're still like very much a new facility <laughs> and and learning how we can actually we we were very worried about how to open up to the public that was you know the infrastructure uh we didn't we're not really a venue right like we're not trying to sell tickets on a daily basis to come to our place like we want it to be more so the working place for individuals in the music industry to come and do their thing um and because otherwise you are looking at Nashville where you have, you know, Bridgestone arena has the annex there where a lot of people do their prep and their, their stuff. But this area that the main thing, when you think about, uh, or when, if some people don't think about it and that's okay, because they're not, they're not on the pulse of what, how shows are done. But when you're talking about an arena show, you can't put on an arena show unless you rent out an arena to put it up and practice it. And that's just money out of the artist's pocket, a.k.a. whoever also paid the artist to do the tour, Live Nation, AEG, the labels, whatever it is. 
is that, um, I mean, that is you, if you're renting out Bridgestone, you're not only just paying for the space, you're paying for all of the concessions that of the, of the time that people cannot put sports events there. Right. So there is a scale that you are just paying out of pocket as an artist to put on your show, just to be safe, to hang millions of pounds above your head (laughs) so that it doesn't come crashing down. And, um, and, and ideally, you know, there needs to be more facilities that are just there for this purpose that do not have like, you know, and, and hopefully the idea is that if there are purpose built places for this, then the ticket sales can hopefully start to be leveled out because a lot of these ticket sales, they're just recouping what they had to pay for to keep the predators or, you know, if it's another city, you know, the, the LA Kings or whatever it is. Out well, of let, let me, hang on, let me yeah. say the predators is a sports team. Okay. I mean, people are watching. Hey. Yes. <laughs> hockey uh, is hockey is done at one of the, the, uh, the biggest I'd say in downtown Nashville indoor arenas. Uh, and that's Bridgestone arena. And that is where the predators play. Um, and, uh, now we have a send amphitheater also in Nashville. Um, but that's a shed. So at this time of year, it's not ideal to either do a show nor practice a show. Uh, so these are, you know, you have war memorial, but I mean, this is not a, this is a common story on any, on any major city is that you really do not, you have competition of what you, of what is there to be able to hold the weight of your shows, which we're talking millions of pounds. Everybody loves a good, uh, you know, when they're watching Taylor Swift they, and Beyonce and these big, beautiful tours that they've done, those IMAGs, just the IMAGs around them have to be on movers. They're being, they're being held and floated and brought up and down by motors. Um, all of that is weight and that weight is steel and iron, and that weight takes a lot of structure to 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 be able to hold those. And that's just not built regularly. It's purpose. It needs to be purpose built, and there's just not enough of them. And that is our idea at Worldwide is to provide that. But because of the building has so many offices and other administrative built buildings that was there from the from the use of what it was built for, which was a whole headquarters. We also have the ability to have, you know, lockups like and storage for the artists when they get off a tour. That's a big thing too. Where do you put your stuff? Like a lot of people don't think about that. It, the artist, you know, it, when you take down your Christmas decorations, everyone is always, I mean, I know I do. I don't even, you know, at, at a certain point, I haven't bought a new, you know, Christmas decoration in a long time. But I swear when I, when I put them up, don't you feel like you just somehow have more and you don't know, you know, you're buying a new plastic box to put it in and you're trying to find it in a different place in your garage to put it. So, so, you know, these artists are not putting all of that stuff at their houses and their garages. And also if the things are custom built, they're not going back to the vendors. You know, some of the things, some of the stages are custom made for some of these artists. So you have to store them if you're going to, if you're, cause you might, cause you can reuse a lot of them. If they're smart, you reuse them. When I was on the Jack tour, I re, we reused a bunch of things. We did have purpose built things for the look and for the impact of the difference between each tour. However, there's certain things like, you know, that you do keep around and where do you put them? So another big aspect of what worldwide will do and has done is having storage for, for, for 
artists for not just, you know, the vin, but for the artists, but for the vendors, you know, the staging companies, the lighting companies, the, 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 the cabling companies, you know, when you, I know that I, you know, four aught and two aught cable, uh, which for the listeners are the huge, uh, shielded bound black cables that you might see people, you know, walking over on stage. Um, you know, they're about the, you know, the, between a silver dollar, uh, size and, and they, they, that weight is, is, is it's a, it's a lot of cabling because that's how you get to front of house all the way to the stage. And if you got a big enough arena, you're taking all that cabling with you. And it's, uh, and it's, and it, and it, and it matters on how you, you, um, you can get in and out with a semi truck. And that's, imp- and that is what also we in Nashville, Cowan street, which is where Oracle bought, they have soundcheck there. They have a lot of amazing, um, you know, vendors that our that our industry use. But Oracle bought all that and wants to kind of use that area as its as its headquarters. So a lot of those people are having to move, uh, and and so we welcome them down here at at, at Worldwide, and um, we just want to make a different. We want it to be different as well. We've done a lot of um, done a lot of work with making the spaces comfortable and beautiful. Um, because, you know, a lot of the, the crew, uh, of all of these productions are sometimes the afterthought, right? Where do they hang out for four hours while the, you know, where does all the crew hang out while the lighting department figures out why one bulb is not coming on, you know, like you, 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 you have to have places like that. And it's also safe to get them out from underneath the things that are, people are working on. So to have these back that green rooms, these beautiful spaces, these comfortable places for not only the crew, but the artists, the band to be in. Um, that's really important about the vision of what, uh, of what worldwide wants to do. And let me say that you're, uh, we may have said this already, but you're the director of productions and artist services for the whole facility. And, uh, because of my background, I'm grabbing a lot of what you're saying and, uh, looking online, once I found out the facility exists, uh, the photographs that you guys you know are putting up on the web to show uh, just how beautiful it is, and I have a, I'm an architecture buff, and so the interior architectural approach is really nice, mm-hmm. and uh, I think something that people can relate to. It's funny, you know, when you see people even like the old rockers like Paul McCartney and uh, Mick Jagger, that everywhere they go they set up it's almost like a Bedouin tent, you know, in the backstage. So they can have something that they feel comfortable with mm-hmm. in the midst of a big, uh, you know, shed. The vibe. It's, it's yeah. important. It's very important. Well, you know, you saying that, boy, man, there's so many things I want to ask you. And if you have to run, let me know at what point. No, you I'm here. You were patient enough for me. But uh, I tell you, you know, because let's kind of go back. But, you know, I definitely want it's, to. It's fascinating to me that you work with Jack White. I don't want to talk about that right now. But. I'm a huge fan of Jack White, and it goes way back. Uh, before I forget about it, I will say the first time I ever heard his name, I'm watching the Grammys, and uh, Loretta Lynn, a country artist, uh, has an album that's up for a Grammy nomination, and uh, they say, you know, Jack White is producer of the year for the Loretta Lynn album. And I'm like, okay, <clears throat> this young guy comes on stage. I thought, wait, who is this young guy, and why is he – producing Loretta Lynn. How does that even happen? And all of a sudden I'm hearing Jack White, Jack White, Jack White. So anyway, there's that fascination there. I I, I found out and I've shared this on the show before, but 
he produced, um, what's her name? Queen of Rockabilly. Uh, for the life of me, I can't remember her name at the moment. Wanda Jackson. Oh, yeah. But Wanda Jackson, uh, for a time, came to our church in Euless, Texas. She used to sit next to me, and I didn't know. Uh, I just thought she was an old country artist. You know, I didn't know that, you know, she hung out with Elvis. And anyway, but then, you know, he produced her in her like late 80s. So that's a whole another story. But let's take it back to the beginning a little bit, because your, your education, I think, is really interesting and something that you uh, shared in our texts, but going back and forth is that if there was anything you could do to be an inspiration to, to, uh, other girls, to women. And <clears throat> I know all the sensitivity about gender specifics and all that, but at the same time, you know, I'm a grandfather. I've got four grandchildren so far. Uh, one of the sons is planning on having a couple more, but the first grandchild is a girl and she's very artistic, very creative, very good with her hands and, and drawing and, um, and, you know, I want to see her excel, but when you have someone like you come on the scene to where, and I was reading in the article you sent me, I guess it's from uh, a magazine out of Columbia. Yeah, it was Murray County Living, I think. Murray County Living, yeah, conversation with Bennett Moon by Alyssa Perry. But you point out that in a, in a field where there's a limited amount of, of women or females, and, you know, I, would, I want to see it change because there's no reason why there can't be more. In, in the drum world, my son's a pro drummer, a producer, a writer for Sony, uh, essential music. But I keep encouraging him, you know, start her on the drums. You know, Sheila E. is an amazing drummer. Uh, the woman, I don't know her name, but she drums for, uh, how can I forget his name? Kid Rock, you know. And so I, I was inspired by a friend of mine who was on one of the first episodes we've done of this show. And I asked her about any sense of a corporate glass ceiling. And she made an interesting comment. She said, I don't know anything about that. She said, because from my first job, which is a teacher, she said, I've always been self-employed. I've had my own business. And I thought, well, you know, that's the idea is to where, you know, you make your own way and obviously you're doing it. So let's go back because your education, I think, really plays in because, you know, some people get into the music industry, the entertainment, entertainment industry, the production industry, and maybe they don't have the schooling, but you actually are educated. You know, you just didn't grow up in a garage band. So tell me a little bit about your your path uh, educationally, because I think I, I know I read somewhere. I can't find it now, but evidently, did you go to school in Europe for a time? I did. I okay, did. So let's kind of go back to the beginning. And, you know, we don't need to drag this out, but I just yeah. think it's fascinating that your degrees and how that, you know, is all playing together now that's equipped you to be able to do all this. So yeah, I, you know, I, I often, you know, I know that, and I, and I say this all with a caveat, there are so many people that have been so successful that did it without any sort of, um, you know, degree. And that's important. It, it is also important. And in my life, like I loved, I love to learn, you know, sometimes school was just school, but I loved to learn. And I knew that if I wanted to set myself up for to not make things harder than they already had to be. And I think a lot of it also was, is that, you know, everyone is gifted and some people just have not seen the way that their gifts shine and to, you know, to figure out how to, you know, dust off what is inside everyone about what they have to be able to honor and to give and to, to, to ignite and to, to fuel that, uh, I was really lucky to have a family that, 
you know, made sure that I, that I knew, I mean, they wanted, they wanted me to excel. Obviously every parent, I think wants their children to, uh, to, to do right. But I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't an absolute in the sense that like I had to do this path, this path, this path, but the wherewithal of knowing and being empowered to know that like, okay, Hey, I, I did get some scholarships. Um, and I, I went to a really small school. Like I, I graduated with 28 people. Uh, and I'd say five, uh, actually not, I'd say, I know exactly five of those people I'd been with since I was three years old and 14 of those 28 people I had been with since I was in about fourth or fifth grade. My world was this big. And for me, I wanted to just love where I come from, but I wanted to also experience more. So I chose to go someplace where I didn't know anybody. I was a, a freshman of 9,000 kids at the University of Georgia, go dogs. Uh, <laughs> and that I, I had toured, I had had many scholarships at other schools and I had toured uh, uh, over 11. I applied to 25 schools and got into all of them. And I, I toured 11 and Georgia was my last one. And it was that moment that I had always hoped for that some people never get it. And I didn't know if I was, but when you walk into a, when you walk on a campus and you can't see yourself anywhere else. And that was how Georgia was for me. Um, but it had a lot to do with the scene, the music in that town that is Athens, Georgia. I mean, B-52s, uh, REM, widespread panic, drive-by truckers of Montreal, the country artists that have come out of there. The, I mean, it's, it's an amazing hub of musicians. Um, and, and I knew, you know, like, I had, I had been people, you know, had known I was going there. They had sent me all this stuff and I was enthralled and, and I knew that they had both academics and music there. And I didn't know, to be honest, that I would do music. Um, I knew that I was good at math and I knew I was good at people. I'm not, you know, I can say that, yes, it's, it's a blanket term to say you're a people person, but truly I think that, and I think it's important to to figure that out within oneself is that it's not just that I'm a people person because there are plenty of people that can work with other people well, but they don't, enjoy, they don't necessarily think that they either one take joy from it and two, it's, it's enjoyable. Right. So I can truly say that I enjoy people and I enjoy as much about what makes people different and where I have to pull different parts of me that maybe have been rusty or I haven't had to, to pull, to work with those people because they are different. They might be, you know, you know, begrudgingly doing something, but then you went, you know, like you, you find that thread that y'all are, you know, that, Oh, okay. I, I know, I, I think I can, I think I know how, I'll, or maybe even through talking, you know, with that, with that confidence to have a conversation with somebody about how they'd like something to go. Um, but I truly do enjoy people. And so going to Georgia, I did do business um, uh, and I did and I coupled it with a music business degree. So I had to take a ton of music classes as well as complete my business. And I can tell you that business was just what I knew that I wanted to have because the degree even then doesn't really necessarily dictate unless you're a doctor what you're going to do. And I just knew that four years, just get the degree, Bennett, you know, just complete that. And, and that allowed me knowing that I had a degree done and I still went on to grad school for engineering after that, but I knew that I just wanted to just have that in my back pocket 
so that I felt like I could take chances in life because if I failed, hey, I got a business degree. I can go to work pretty fast because I could do and that, you know, any sort of business would, would, you know, essentially be able to hire me because I just did the work. I just got the paperwork. And in some ways, I hate to say that because, you know, that's exactly why some people don't want to go to school because they don't, they know that they, it sometimes doesn't matter. And it's true. However, for me, my confidence to take risks exponentially rose because I knew I had a parachute no matter if I failed or not. And so that was my, that was my path to that um, and why I did the schooling I did. And while I was in school, I knew I wanted, I was thinking about basically going into the music industry. Um, I wanted to know what I was, you know, I wanted to have parts of what wasn't going to be easily accessible here in the States. And there was a program, I was a, I, I was in a youth symphony. I grew up playing uh, the flute and the piano uh, thank you, Granny. Uh, I, but I had, I didn't, I wasn't actively, I wasn't, I wasn't in a, I didn't do it more than anything other than knowing how to read music and knowing how important music is for so many, for so many ways. But I also went to Austria uh, and to study at, uh, at Innsbruck, but we, it was, it's basically, Salzburg, Vienna, and Innsbruck, um, and they, they, Vienna has some of the most amazing opera houses in the entire world, um, and, 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 and of course, any of the other major cathedrals that were built in Europe, those uh, acoustics, and so I really wanted to go there to study acoustics, which is science, and it's math, basically, so I, I you know, to study those buildings and architecture and to know how those um, how those buildings play and the re- and the ways that those buildings were built uh, to to help sound carry throughout a room you know in some of those cathedrals no matter how big they are you can whisper on stage and there's actually some theaters here built in the U S for especially the ones in the vaudeville era um, there are remarkable theaters built here in the U S that you can whisper on stage or talk at a very low conversational tone. And you can be in the far balcony and you're going to be able to hear them because of the way that the building and the, and the way, and even without science as technically technical uh, and technology was back then, they, you know, through trial and error, they knew how to build beautiful places that carried sound without electricity. And um, so I, that, that, that really rose my, my, my wherewithal to like, all right, when you finish your undergrad, what do you want to do, Bennett? And now, now how old were you when you went to Austria then? Because you you grew up in Colombia, correct? Well, I actually am. I'm a. I'm really young. I'm. I'm very young because I actually went. Uh, I skipped a grade when I was younger, and uh, so at the beginning of my freshman year of college, I was 17, and I graduated in four years. I did have. Don't worry for people that. I mean. I had to take summers. I mean, sometimes you just got to figure out. And I, I changed from international business to a couple other degrees. So to finish in four years, I did have to take summer school, May master. So, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't worry too much that if you want to graduate in four years and not five, you can, you no no shame in having to like go back to school during your summer. Um, but, you know, I, I was able to, to graduate at age 21 and before graduating, I had applied to the National Music Conservatory, and they had granted me uh, a, 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 well, a scholarship to go to the recording workshop 
which is a uh, it's it's mainly in Ohio, and then they they also give you like residencies at other studios all over the U.S. So I was able to go to L.A., I was able to go to Texas, and to 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 Austin, to to New York, um, and to kind of go to these studios that um, were a part of the program to help engineers, young engineers, know how one you know just a seat in the room, and then two. Um, I was lucky enough at that time that that would have been, so that would have been in 2000, the fall of 2011, I was 21 and just fresh graduated in May and 2011 going back to Jack White, right? Like, oh, nine, 10, that's the research, like the reemergence, not the surge, but just the reemergence of vinyl, right? That was oh eight and 10, basically people started putting their digitally recorded albums of the, of the nine, you know, nineties, early two thousands. They started taking what they had done and printing them to big vinyls because they were pieces of art. After that, and Jack was right there, Jack White, uh, you know, you know, that savior of so many things, so much of the art that is lost sometimes and has, and how much work he has done to secure it, um, at the, his own expense, a lot of the times and at naysayers expense, but he's not been wrong and he wasn't wrong. And so he brought his, you know, third man records pressing company. Um, uh, and at that time he was actually using other pressers like United and whatnot to do his albums, but he, he, he had the vision and he saw it. And he knew it would be a, he knew it was going to be worth it. So at that, after the vinyl started, just people were like, oh, this is really cool. I like having this, not CD, but this vinyl. And then, and then that's when the art, the true like nitty gritty of it comes into play. And I was in school right at that perfect time. And I, I, I mean, Malcolm Gladwell is an author. I mean, some people outliers like, um, what is it? David and Goliath, mm-hmm. uh, the there's outlier outliers the t- tipping point tipping point he yeah. sp- he speaks a lot about this that i and and i say that because i want i have been so blessed i have worked hard but i have been so blessed just like malcolm gladwell will point out that sometimes it is about embracing the where you are and seeing how to make and seeing how that what's happening and what you could actually be a part of instead of just striving and digging down and like, this is what I want to do. Like what, what is happening? And, um, I was blessed to be in that time where I was seeing this resurgence of vinyl and also in Athens, Georgia, where I had interned before I had graduated undergrad was a place called Chase Park Transduction Studios owned by David Barbie, Andy LeMaster. And they, that studio in, especially on the Eastern seaboard is one of the, the, has one of the largest collections of tape machines. We're talking about Atari, 3M, Studer. Uh, These are, you know, machines that, you know, have just like just gathered dust and and this is, I mean, common story across so many studios, whether it's a big one or a small one, you know, home studios or not. People, once the box, aka the computer came into play, Pro Tools, you, you don't need to house these huge, basically, you know, like these huge cabinets with these reels on top. Um, and, you know, tape is expensive. Tape, you know, is it, it 
tape is so simple, but it's expensive. Um, and, 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 and so that just, it, they just, you know, people moved away from them, the nineties, two thousands, early two thousands. And I had interned there, uh, at Chase Park Transaction. So I had seen some of these and, and David Barbie and some of the engineers at Chase Park, uh, they still used tape. There were still artists like, like drive-by truckers, Patterson hood, God bless them has never, you know, really, even if he recorded some of the tracks, like, you know, if you need like, you know, 30 takes of one song or whether you have, you know, a whole uh, orchestra that you're recording. So you'd need most of the tape machines, you know, they're going to be the, you know, the, well, you mix on a two, you know, you mix on a stereo uh, two track, but you know, you have eight track, 16 track, six, uh, 16, 24, 48, 64, depends on your board, right? If you have an MCI board, you have a huge fader board, right? You can bus different channels, but really, truly, it comes down to being able to to track what you want. And and sometimes it was a mix of it. So as an as an intern and then as an assistant engineer, I got I was really blessed to be able to see that you can maybe record the album, like you know, do the dubs and do and 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 the and 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 get the meat of it. And then after you've tweaked it in the box, send it through the tape machine just to get the 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 beautiful compression that go that happens within a tape machine is incredible. It it it's it's I mean there's you can look on YouTube they can show you on the wavelengths but I mean there is about a ten it's a it's a compression that happens that it's why when you hear those trumpet sounds on a uh, you know a on a Count Basie record or the you know Etta James singing her that trill in her voice and on a on a vinyl record. Or even as you're hearing it in as on Spotify, it was still recorded in this fashion, and that is just something that most algorithms and plugins and Pro Tools they do a good job of it. it it's just still incredible to do it the way that it was done originally. And so I started at before I had in, entered engineering school. I had worked on these tape machines, seen how they worked, and they were just churning in my head. And as soon as I had done the the meat of what audio engineering is, um, I continued on to get certifications. I got sound for motion pictures, sound for game audio. So doing Foley effects, you know, like the way, you know, whenever you play a video game and you hear, you know, you punch a guy and it's like, ugh, it's like, or you drop something. I mean, all those have to be recorded and planted in, into the game. And so somebody has to record them to give them to the designer to put them in the game. I mean, I did, you know, after, after I realized I had done so much engineering work and signal flow, I came out of that knowing like, you know what? I think that like people are going to be buying these records. And at that same time, people actually don't want their digitally recorded or they might want to see what it's like to record the whole process analog. And I needed to also pay off grad school and I needed to, I needed to do any work I could. I was at that point at, after the year, I was 22, 23. I looked like a, no, wait, wait, stop. So at 22, 23, you'd finished a grad school. Mm-hmm. I did my, I did systems engineering and audio engineering. And I got, went on to do my certifications in game promotion, uh, audio promotion picture, audio for game for game systems and uh, advanced sound systems. Like I built and I started doing speakers. Like I started to, uh, well, I did, I, you know, worked for companies or interned for companies while in grad school on how to, you know, build massive 
sound arrays. Okay, so what we see here is, folks, is that Bennett uh, definitely falls in falls into the classification of uh, a nerd. Uh, uh, well, an overachiever. Uh, I would call it a superachiever. Let's use that terminology. I think that's better. But also the fact that by that age you have a an engineering degree in sound. Uh, so you know, without going too far back, I want to keep the story moving forward. But at what point did you realize you had an interest in the scientific, not really mechanical, but it is in a sense of sound mechanics? Mm -hmm. uh, when did you, you know, because you talked about your parents being an encourager of, you know, putting your foot in the door, going forward. But was there something that clicked where you go, wait, th this makes sense to me? Yeah. And I, and I, I want to be careful on how I say this because it is, I, and I don't know how else other than to say it is that. I knew, and you, and you, and you spoke about women, right? And I'll just be very honest. I was 23 and I looked the way I do. I was a, I knew, and it's not anything like I say that and I am, it is, and, and, and I truly, it's not, I'm not angry. And I was never angry about it truly because one, I was so young, but I knew that there was no way that I was going to be hired for what I was doing, which is to make my rock and roll records unless I earned my place because I look like this. I, and that's, and that, I mean, you, it doesn't matter about looks. And I, and I, that's why I'm very careful about saying it, but I'm not ignoring the fact that I didn't, I wasn't coming off as somebody that would be hired to make, you know, the next red hot chili peppers record. Right. Because I was too bright eyed and bushy tailed. And I knew that. And I also honored that I didn't need to change. That's the, that's what is, I, I might feel bad about saying that, like, I understand, I, I didn't succumb to that, but I almost just owned it. If that's any way to say it, and if, if you want, you know, like on advice on women, like I have a ton of it, I, <laughs> I owned, I owned where I, I owned where I was at in my career. And I didn't, I wasn't upset that people always thought I was the girlfriend immediately immediately i was the girlfriend of the band or i was the merch girl oh i'm saying okay I, I'm, I'm getting what you're saying then does that make sense oh, so in the room they don't see you as the technologist or no. the scientist yeah they see you as someone yeah. who's yeah. tagging along exactly taking up space really but um, as a as a, a young girl were you like taking lego sets or the, the yeah uh, the you know and, and uh engineering not i know that's mechanical but i'm saying but there's something yeah. Because yeah. you're passionate about what you do, what you know. And I think to know it at the level you do, there has to be a passion. And so that's been in you from the beginning. Yeah. Uh, so I don't want to get too bogged down on that. But to me, so it's I'll fascinating. I'll tell you one thing. So exactly what I learned a lesson early on. And it and it hurt when I heard it because it was from somebody that I really respected. But I'm so glad he said it to me. And he is a mentor to this day. And I respect him. Is that he said, sometimes Bennett, someone is going to ask you what time it is. And you're, you automatically sometimes reply with how a clock works. And truly what I had to work on as a person is how to differentiate between where that's okay to talk about how a clock works. And maybe that actually benefits the conversation, but also just make sure that you tell them what time it is when they need it. Answer the question. So I very much, yes, I have had that brain in my, in, you know, for a very long time. 
but it's the curiosity part. It's really the curiosity part. Um, and turning off sometimes the person, like, again, I go, like I am a dual, I have so much people person. And then I shut, shut that off. And people are like, man, you, you, it's not like a flip, but it's like, I will zone out and not have anybody talk to me or just not answer, just not do anything other than just like dig, dig into something. And you have to do that when you're in, in this career. So, okay. So, so early on, so you get your graduate degree early in sound engineering, Mm -hmm. then you go to Austria and you study actually sound more. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you come back to the States. And so let's pick up there. Then what happened when you actually, I went back, I went back actually to the place that I had interned at originally in undergrad, which was Athens, Georgia, Chase Park Transduction Studios. Uh, they're incre- it's an incredible place. Um, and it's, it's got, it's not flashy. It's, it's actually the antithesis probably of what worldwide stages looks like. It's just, it is just a facility that is blessed with so much old gear that has been maintained because of the owners and the studio managers there. And because it has been a place that has continuously had business. It's a sad thing to have seen over the years, some beautiful studios close down because they just can't keep it. Can't keep the competition of what somebody can do in their bedroom. You know, that, you know, people stopped paying to come into a studio because, Oh, you know, this kid down the street, you know, took his daddy's money and put in a $5,000 sounds, you know, a computer and, soundproofing and I'm going to go record my hip hop album there. You know, I mean, that's what happened. And this Chase Park Transaction Studios was able to survive through that. And and still to this day, and they had a job waiting for me. And I was, you know, there's just not a lot of female engineers. I think at the time when I really started to, to stop, like just to stop my like learning, like going and getting more certifications, because I was trying to like weigh out like, all right, if I'm not going to be able to really get booked to do what I'm learning to do, then I'm just going to keep learning how to do more. Like, so that's why I kept doing the certifications for, you know, sound promotion picture and all that. And so I stopped doing that and they had a job waiting on me. And to be honest, I went to undergrad there. So I knew I was broke. So broke. Uh, I, I needed, I needed another job on top of doing what I was going to, or what I went to school to do. And and knowing Athens as the town, I knew where to get the $2 lunches. And I was like, all right, I can do this. I can come move back there and I can, and there's a, there's a theater there. There's a music venue there called the Georgia theater. It's incredible. Um, And I knew I was like, well, Hey, I want some live sound, you know, experience as well. I don't want to just get paid because I was getting paid to just fix things too. I was taking any job I could. So people would send the studio, these like little eight tracks or big, big machines. And it is mind numbing work. I'll be honest. I did the work that nobody else wanted to do. And that is what helped me to this day, get to where I am because Jack White or third man records had sent, they, they needed people, the, the tiny, tiny, like down to the tiny screws in some of these 1960s tape machines, they don't, you don't make them any, they, they aren't made anymore. So what happens is that you can buy up old broken ones, but parts of those old broken ones still work. So I would take those old broken ones that are just unrepairable and I would take them all apart, fi- get all the little pieces out, file them, and then sell them on eBay for like the company just to, or to help other people fix things. Um, and so 
you know, just a little, I mean, we haven't gotten there yet, but that is really truly how I got connected with third man records and, 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 and Jack and, and also through some touring stuff is that I have a, I have a name that you remember Bennett moon. And I remember having, didn't know who it was for, but I had coming back home for Christmas one time, they were like, Oh, you're going to Tennessee. Well, this big machine, we were going to ship it. Can you, you know, we'll pay you to hand deliver it. And I was like, yeah, like I'm going that way anyway. It's, it's actually safer in my, at that time, I think I was driving a Honda Civic, you know, like it was actually safer in my car than, than putting it on a UPS truck and shipping it. So, um, so that, so that, so at that time, when I got back to Athens, I just took any job because even when I did start to finally get credit enough and expertise being the assistant engineer, which I also give David Barbie so much credit for giving me a chance to be in the room with these stars, uh, with these incredible, you know, with like some, of you know, some major artists that, you know, got, they're like, Oh, and I would get, I would meet their management teams or I would. And in Athens, it's a, it's a college town. I would, I would go to, I was able to go to these like, you know, divey music venues, like, you know, 30 people in the room and just like, go listen to a show and be like, here's my card. If you, I was like, I can get you a really good deal. If you want to lay two tracks down, I'll make it happen. You know, like I, I gave, I worked for free. <laughs> Like, I, I, I mean, I, there was times where I just got them to pay the studio, like for the power and the time. And I did my own where I did it for free because you have to start somewhere. You have to. And, and so that's, you know, I got to fit into the schedule by working at Chase Park. And then I started working at Georgia Theater, started doing just stage, stage management, state, like doing, helping when the load ins and the loadouts happen and understanding like how that part of the whole music thing is, you know, like how semi trucks are packed or how monitor engineers are different than front of house engineers and how all of that signal flow plays into what's happening when you see a live production. Um, and I did that for a couple and yeah, and that's kind of what I did. And I, even on top of that, I used my business degree again, you never know how you're going to use some of the things that you put into, but, um, these bands that there was a lot of bands that come out of Athens and moon taxi actually is a national band, but it was managed out of Athens. And what they did uh, is that they would send all their merchandising receipts and they would do all their online sales. And so when I couldn't get people to record during the day, cause artists don't get up before noon, you know, like the old saying or whatever. But so I would go to work from like 10 AM until 3 PM at a, uh, at a management group, like a label, and all I would do is use my business degree and make spreadsheets about what the sales for these artists after they gave me the receipts and they'd pay me per, like they'd pay me hourly. I think that's, I mean, I, I did everything I could within the industry that I, that I could to try to figure out where I might fit. Well, I tell you, so what the, the story about the Honda Civic with the gear. So was that going to Jack? He was going to, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Third, yeah. Third, third, third man records. Yeah. Third man records. Yeah. yeah. You know, we were there. It had my, you know, like it had my sign off. Like I signed everything I fixed. And so it had my name in there, Bennett Moon. And they found out, you know, I was following him when he sent uh, some record. uh, You remember when he sent it into outer space Mm -hmm. on a turntable? And then one of his uh, tech guys that also keeps like all of his uh, antique gear that's in the third man, probably in both locations, uh, the one here in Nashville. But, uh, yeah, that that's amazing. You know, we I was I guess we were in town visiting. We didn't live here yet, yet right? And uh, you know, so I took my family down to Third Man Records, 
Because I remember when he released the video, the, the, the vinyl that he did. And they, you remember the guys that they had on the motor scooters and they went driving off. And I'm thinking they're out in the middle of somewhere. And yeah. I didn't realize it's like right downtown. Yeah. So we get there and it's just somebody's jamming out inside. Yeah. And uh, it, he had to be there because it was the seventh anniversary of Third Man Records. And they had security and all this. I thought, well, I've been here before. There was none of this. And so there was this woman at the door. And uh, I think she's actually in the other group, not the Tours, that he toured with. Dead with Alice Dead. Yeah, she looked familiar. Yeah. Uh, but they had her in a security guard outfit. And uh, and I said, is he here? Uh, well, hey, thank you so much for coming today. And, you know, she wouldn't answer my question. But they were rocking out. But we just happened to be there. But I didn't get to go back uh in the warehouse area. Full cool time to be there. Yeah, it was fun, but and, but that is amazing. So I, I'm just fascinated because I see this also this entrepreneurship to where you're taking gear, breaking it down, and uh, you know selling stuff on eBay. That that is very inspirational. It's a, it's a small thing, but you know just all of these layers of things you're doing to make uh, things happen for yourself. Okay, so you're you're back. You you're working at the studio uh, in Athens, and uh, so let's pick up there and kind yeah. of move forward. So I had and I'd also so I'd been making and, and I made some records I was really proud of. By that point, it would have been 20, 20, 2015, 2016. and I had and I had mentioned that I had been working managerial wise uh, for uh, a a label so gt music group and they had um several artists on their group on their on their uh roster moon taxi probably being one of the bigger ones um and and i had done i had just finished being the assistant engineer on patterson hood from drive by truckers uh her solo record heat lightning rumbles in the distance and then i had done drive by truckers uh go go boots and the big to do which is a dual album that they did and so I had just, you know, really felt like I got some good credit on, you know, and my discography.com is worthless. I, I need to update it. But I had I had known that I had made a difference and I was really working at the Georgia Theater and 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 being at that point, uh, 2016, I was also doing monitor. I had like kind of picked up shifts doing monitors and I was like doing live sound and, you know, outside of getting people in the studio because the studios cost a lot of money, you know, it does cost a lot of money to record songs professionally, right? Like at a professional place. Uh, and, and I, they basically, Moon Taxi kind of had their first tour bus, uh, one of their first tour bus tours and they needed crew. And I had already been taking care of them, uh, you know, financially with their records of their, of their, you know, merchandise and, uh, expenses and, they just, you know, they needed crew. And at that point it was 2016. And I kind of just looked at myself. I was 26 or something like that. 20. Yeah. I think 26, 27. And, uh, I just said, you know, or yeah, 26. I was like, well, if I'm going to go out on the road, if I'm going to, I knew that, you know, there's other things in my life that I, I knew I, I would want to do, you know, but going out on tour is also a vacuum of your time and a disruptor of what you what you might be on a path doing but it also is a huge opportunity to learn things that you really cannot learn it, even if it's the same beast it's sound you know it's sound 
that you got to. But when you apply that at a different venue every night and advancing shows and you are learning the crowds and you are going across the nation, it's just a whole experience. And I knew I wanted to do it. And I got that opportunity very blessed and thankfully with uh with a band that has my same last name, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Like I, like the band existed outside of me before, you know, before I even worked with them because they, they were all, they all met in at Belmont in Tennessee, but yet I was working for them in Georgia through their management. And then, and then, and then, you know, that whole thing, they needed, they needed crew for this, for this tour bus tour. And they were like, do you want to do it, Bennett? And I was like, you know what? I do. I do. Awesome. So you assembled the crew and mm-hmm. then went on tour and then were you like the production manager or? Well, there was there. Yeah. Well, no, not, not originally. I was still the youngest person there. I was probably 25, 26, I think. And so they had, they had their, they, from their previous tours, like their sprinter van tours, they had already a front of house and they didn't have a monitor engineer, but they also didn't, at that point, they weren't playing venues that needed their own sound uh, monitor engineer. They just used the venues because it's basically free, right? Um, so I was doing, I was like stage managing. I was doing all of like everything and settling the shows and doing the hospitality and not selling the merch. Like I didn't sell the merch, but I'd have to do the counts because, you know, venues have splits. So like they take, you know, 20% of all the soft goods and usually 20 to 30% of the soft goods and 10% of the, of the, of the hard, which is like vinyls or music or whatnot. And you have to settle all of that. Even if it's three in the morning, you have, you cannot leave the venue without paying the venue their, their due. And so I was the business person. Well, wait, I, I've been around, you know, and grew up in music personally and all, you know, so I did not know this. So when you said settle the tour, you literally like the night, each Before night you left, you had to pay them. Like the, the you the, had to pay them your merch, correct? They they would they, like you write write them a check. It's cash. So I had to keep a bank. So basically, anything if if I didn't have enough cash sales to pay the percentage, then then I had to just go into the per diem cash that I had on hand to pay the crew every day and the band every day. So I did not know that, and I think it's funny you use the term sprinter. Uh, and we don't, we, we don't realize this, that there are probably some big, you know, pretty sizable names that still don't travel with tour buses because of the expense. Mm-hmm. And so it was a big deal then for the group you're working with to go from the sprinter vans to the tour bus. Making it. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut off, but no. I was just shocked that, so here you are literally carrying yeah. around a wad of cash yeah. and giving these people that run those venues uh, their pay, uh, that reminds me of, uh, what is the guy's name? They call him super Minch. Um, he represents all the, all the, the stars, uh, oh. Shep, Shep, Gordon. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he said that one of the things, you know, when he moved, went into town, he had, you know, no experience of any kind, but obviously very gifted at that. And, uh, but him talking about the one thing that he was capable of doing that he brought home every night was also, getting paid before he left and, and uh, some of the things that he would uh, stimulate in order to bring about them paying the artists, you know, what they were supposed to get. So that's fascinating. So, okay, keep going. Yeah. So that, that did, I, I worked with moon taxi from touring. Uh, I started working, like I said, working 
administratively with them uh, managerially about 2014. So about two years went by and I was still making records and working at the Georgia theater, doing live sound and making rock and roll records. And then 2016 hit, I go out on tour and I tour with them all the way through. Uh, basically on my off time too, I always went back to Athens. I still had my house there. Uh, and I had thankfully a, a roommate that, uh, that took care of my animal and, and, you know, made sure I had a place to come back to that, you know, when you collapse off tour, it's just, you just need a place to decompress. And so I, but when I would go back, you know, you would, you would sometimes be off for like three weeks. So I still needed to make money and my relationships with those places. That's why they're so near and dear to my heart. The Georgia theater, Chase Park Transduction Studios, um, they allowed me to come back and work like on my off time. I mean, tape machines don't just fix themselves. <laughs> so even on my off time, even when I was out going, you know, doing tours, I would still come back and, and just see what somebody had dropped off, what somebody had acquired, what needed to be fixed and just go back into the shack in the back of the building and just start taking things apart and fix, you know, trying to just make money where I could. And so when I was off a tour during 2016 and 2017, I was still doing that, that like basically engineering work, uh, uh, of, of, of hardware, of fixing tape machines and fixing gear that like even records, even like record players, like old, uh, you know, uh, Royal, you know, like the Victrola, Victrola, like the big ones mm-hmm. with the horns. I mean, finding, I mean, I, I think I went on a whole two day trip one time, just trying to go to different manufacturing uh uh places that did like for custom machines like machinery and trying to get them to tell me can we remake this part like i really need it i like can we can we combine two like how much is it going to cost you know like all these things like do you know that something do you know something that could be this way or you know maybe you need to rethread you know sometimes often because i couldn't get the right screw thread they don't make it anymore how you know, determining how easy and how with, with withstanding the brunt force to maybe just re-thread a screw to an old machine with a modern day screw standard or metric system, you know, like that, mm-hmm. that took time. So throughout all that, that's why I still kept the, the, like the relationships with vendors and, and, and people from all over the world that I, that like, were like on Reddit, they're like, we heard somebody in Georgia, like, fixes like stuff like that. And, and I'm just like, I'm like, and they all think that my name's fake, you know, because, and I promise you it's not, it's just, you know, and I can't tell you how often when I settled the shows, like when I would give them my email, you know, it's like, yes, no, no, it's not Bennett moon because I work for moon taxi. I was born Bennett moon and that's my email. You know, you know something that didn't dawn on me until I was looking over some notes you sent me that your grandmother's maiden name. All good. Okay, it was all good, but then uh, the oh. the Bennett name. Oh yeah, yeah. It's from uh, Mississippi. Your, your great grandmother, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. So in your history, that's how you I got have it. The Bennett line, but then I'm a Bennett, and I thought, well, you know, we may be cousins. <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 and she was uh, my grandmother was a uh, genealogist, so. We're going to dig into that a little bit more, Kenny, because I would I have a whole big book that she wrote about that, a tomb, really, uh, that that traces that line. And I could I could uh, I could spend some time with you and I might even just give you a copy and maybe we can figure out how, oh, that, that'd how be hilarious, wouldn't it? related we are. 
And then your name Moon, I, I shared with uh, Bennett, you know, in com in communication that uh, mm -hmm. there was a Texas ranch that I grew up on. Uh, the woman who owned it and the Alvin Bennett, his family homesteaded it, 2000 acre ranch and uh, last name Moon. So mm -hmm. all these things started to click and I thought, well, we already have a vibe going. So uh, yeah. that's cool. So, so you're advancing along. Mm -hmm. um, but then you also, you showed. Uh, so, yeah, that really the click was, is that. So 2017 hit and Moon Taxi was also picking up and we were doing Letterman. Uh, we were doing all the late night circuits. We were doing, you know, we were, we were, go, you know, Jimmy Kimmel, we were doing, we were doing it. And at that same, and I will say that you ask like sometimes what for inspiration and in 2017, I kind of had that moment where should I, what should I do? Should I do more live touring or should I, finally capitalize on the clout that I had and try to make more rock and roll records, right? Or make rec records. It didn't have to be rock and roll. I kind of facetiously say rock and roll records. I have recorded orchestras, right? I have recorded classical. So, so not just rock and roll records. Uh, uh, and I've done, oh, actually Cicada Rhythm has an amazing Americana record as well. But the, the really the, the 2017 crux within me is that I really needed to know where I should direct my talents. At that point, I really had tapped into a lot. And I think at that point, I needed to see where to strengthen those lines within my own self and my own world to see better where I could strengthen those talents instead of grow the, grow lots of talents. And so that crux happened and I will never, I will always say that, you know, and this is not just for females, but it is for so many people that my career truly took off, truly took off is when I real, I, I was real, I was being pulled so much for my managerial skills. Even when I was a very accomplished and capable engineer, it was so often where naturally people even when it wasn't something I needed to do, like if I, like at that point, our crew had grown to be where like, I didn't even need to do the merch anymore, but people just came to me within the venue. And I, I know that I hold a presence because I I'm, you know, a production manager. I, you know, people saw that I knew things, but then less and less on the road on touring was I called upon for my engineering and more and more my people skills. So I was there to settle. Like, I mean, I would be called upon to like have, you know, talks with band members, between band members. I was between management and band members, between, you know, accountants and band members. I mean, I was being pulled, I'd say at that time, more and more about my managerial and my people skills than I was being called upon for my actual fingers on faders, bringing a guitar up or a piano down more. And that was kind of hard to swallow because I had done so much to be accomplished as an engineer. And that was something I was so proud about being one of the only female engineers on the, on the East coast with all my accreditations and like, and I knew that it mattered, but I also was just stunned that people just wanted me there to be a people, people, more business in the music industry than anything, or to man or to manage all of the production management is really 
you're not doing engineering as either, but you, a lot of production managers are engineers at some point, because when you look at a big, when you need to build a show, you're looking at like a lot of gear and you need to know what that gear is. You know, like you need to know the difference between, you know, lighting, like you need to know all the gear. You need to know lighting gear, automation gear, motors. You need to know weights. You need to know trusses. You need to know audio. You need to know speakers. You need to know so much. So I was learned, I had learned, I've been picking up and learning all that. And, uh, cause actually our production manager did, uh, have, to, he had a baby. So he may have been offsite doing it, but I was, I was lucky enough, like another chance that I didn't even plan for is that because he went home to have the baby for three months, I was the on-site production person. So I got to, he got to build the sheets and I got to implement them. And then by the time I was done with it, I was building the sheets and implementing them because I was able to have learned that way. And so in 2017, it really, it really was the biggest, one of the biggest things that I can say in my career of that moment where one accepting and not fighting it is that, and and I hope anybody can take this to heart is that my career took off when I finally realized what I was naturally good at and I combined it and honored it with what I studied to be good at because I was so much pushing down what I was naturally gifted at, which was people. I do not know why people like me. I mean, I'm so happy that they do. And I try to carry myself to be that. But I mean, even if I was, I mean, people liked me when I was a hard, hard, you know, and I was a hardliner. How about that? Hardliner. Um, I, uh, and I, I, you know, with a stern foot and a stern voice, you know, but they still gravitated towards me, even in those instances when most people, you know, I could be labeled as like a thousand different, you know, words that they describe women that have, you know, that, that walk into a room and, you know, most of the time, you know, it's 7am and we walk in and, you know, all the guys are there, the hands, they're just, you know, union workers and, you know, they're all kind of, and I just start saying, I'm like, Hey, do you think, you know, maybe, uh, this looks a little dusty and we're going about to unload our trailer, unload our semi truck. Like let's, uh, let's get a broom and clean this up so that we're not putting our gear on dirty ground. I get that the venue hasn't been used in a couple of days, but let's do that. And they just look at me and they're like, no, we're not like, or they, they would, I mean, they just didn't, they didn't react. And I had, I mean, I introduced myself. I'm like, Hey, I'm Bennett. I'm with the band. So like, do, do y'all have a broom that you could just start sweeping this? Uh, and you know, none of them would act. And I would realize like, Oh man, they don't get it. They don't get it. They, they don't get that. I'm at like, <laughs> they thought I was the girlfriend of the band looking for the shower. Right. Yeah. So then I'd have to back up and I'd be like, all right, let's start this again. Hi, I'm Bennett. I'm going to be the person that you're going to be listening to all day. So it's going to be a great day as long as we work well together. So let's start that right now. So let's make sure that this happens. I need a broom. I can do it myself. If you get me the broom, I prefer you do it, but we don't have, because I just need it done now. <laughs> and like, you know, and people would, you know, get, get the, get the picture. And I think that that was really what happened when I realized and my, as soon as I accepted that, as soon as I stopped fighting the, the roles that were being asked of me in the sort of managerial way, I, and, and gave up being like, no, if I'm not the person that's making the sound in here and like, then I'm just going to go back to being thought of a, as like somebody that needs to, you know, go, be thought of as the girlfriend of the band, you know, which, you know, it is just not, not a good place to feel. And so, so 
what I hear, there was a cartoon, uh, just a few panes of a cartoon. And uh, there was like a, a uh, there was like a cat and a dog. And in the middle was a duck. And the dog looks at the duck and says, uh, rough, rough. Uh, have you seen that? And then the duck looks at the cat and says, meow, meow. Yeah. And then the cat answers, meow, meow. And then he looks at the dog and says, rough, rough, you know. Yep. So the gift of translating. And uh, I'm so pumped up and inspired by the fact that. So where you are at this point in your career back in 16, 17 is you have the expertise coupled with uh, what's being placed on you because you're a natural at it. Is but you have the skill set that you can walk into a room and you can immediately tell what's wrong or what's right, mm -hmm. and uh, but then also you possess the skill set to be able to address it or to know if the person you're depending on to address it is not doing it properly, mm -hmm. and so it gives you a lot of strength and a lot of power and uh, gives you leverage to get the job done, which is you know paramount in any of this, and because things are so expensive. So to me, uh, what a fascinating story of, you know, there wasn't like this outset to where you sat down and you write the legal pad and here's everything I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. But I think also something that you brought out that that's really inspirational. And I've seen this theme in other people that, you know, on the, that have been on the show is uh, this moment where you say, I can do that. I'm willing to do that. Even back when you went back home to, at that time, Athens, Georgia, and you just started making yourself available to pick up work, to add to your income. And oh, yeah. compared to where you'd been, I mean, you've been in Austria, you know, one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And then you're back in Athens, Georgia. Not that it's not, not a beautiful place, but you know what I'm saying to where you're, you're fixing a reel to reel uh, audio recording machine. Uh, so that that's cool. And I think we can all benefit from that. And you have a can-do attitude is what I'm hearing. So pick up from there. Yeah. I mean, that can-do, it's like I, the moment, <laughs> yeah, here's a shout out to, you know, another, you know, more maybe geared toward a, to females, but really to anybody is that the moment that I, the moment that you think that somebody and that you're too good to do something is the moment that you lost out being good at it. And I don't know how else to say it. Like you can be good at cleaning a toilet and it actually matters. Like you, you just don't know how things actually can show up in your life that is benefited. Like I remember I walked into a venue and the toilet was just awful. Like it just was, I mean, I, I didn't want, I didn't want the people I cared about using it. And I just got the, I knew where the, I had passed the broom closet down, like walking to the green room. So just go around the corner, get that, get the stuff, spray that thing down, wipe it all clean move on with it, you know, but then, you know, somebody comes in there and they're just like the venue manager. And they're just like, wow, like I was actually coming to clean that y'all showed up early. Uh, so sorry that it wasn't clean, you know, and apologizing to me. And I'm like, Hey, it doesn't matter. It's fine. I took care of it. I don't, I don't, it's not a big deal. No worries. I appreciate you trying to take care of it, but I just did it. And that, that thought, you know, again, I was, I was the most high, you know, I was the highest person in of authority in that building at the time. And I didn't care. I didn't care that it needed to get done. And I didn't make a big deal out of it. It made, you know, like, and it, and it shouldn't have been a big deal, but the venue manager, the promoter of that show happened to be working for AEG and AEG is, you know, up there with live nation as the largest promoter of shows and festivals and 
of tours in the whole nation and of the world, really. Um, and they, you know, that same promoter remembered me because I had not made a big deal about it. And I, had, and, wow. I had, and I had done it myself. And I got actually that same promoter hired me on my off time to do the VMAs to do, to be just a promoter liaison, literally just a person between the promoter and the artists for this MTV music awards, CMAs, the VM, the video music awards. I mean, that's saying that's how little, I mean, I, I'm not I don't want to be as cliche as like, oh, I cleaned a toilet and I got a bigger gig. I was already in a good gig. I was already up there. I just did that. And, you know, the guy was like, hey, are you, I saw that y'all are not going to be on tour for a little bit. I actually need some help. Would you want to come to work during your off time? And I've got like the Super Bowl, like Ariana Grande Super Bowl performance. I ended up working that and being the one of the promoter and production liaisons between the event and the, and the management. And so that's, I mean, I don't, I mean, it, it is a simple, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there was other things and factors besides, but the moment that first interaction with me and that person was that he, we arrived early, we were two hours early. So I give it to them that the toilet wasn't clean, right? Like they would have had time to clean it, but I wanted, I needed to start work and it was 7am and I wanted to get in there and I cleaned the toilet and it was that in that interaction that made the, the road and the platform for that. And there's those kinds of respects between people, between somebody that's like a 50 year old promoter and me in my mid twenties as just a band manager or band, you know, engineer and manager and road person that made me be able to climb, climb, climb. Well, let me ask you something, something that's kind of germinating in my brain is um, I've talked to my well, both of my sons have music business degrees. My oldest one's working in the music industry. And, you know, the, I'm sure you've seen the documentary Sound City uh, done by Dave Grohl and telling, really, it's the story of the Neve console. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the midst of telling the story of the Neve console, which if you don't know what that is, look it up. But Neve is a guy out of, I think he's out of England. Rupert Neve, he, he died broke. Oh, That's did he really? He died. He, uh, I mean, I don't know how broke, but he, but, he, he let, he hated what he, there's a there. It's a really interesting story for the listeners. Definitely look up Robert Neve. He was to this day one of the 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 preamps that he developed for Sony. The preamps and these huge uh, boards. They are still some of the, the original ones. They are still some of the most sought after pieces ever in the music industry. And there are I bet you a hundred different apps or like plugins on Pro Tools that just try try and fail at trying to get what Rupert Neve was able to, to preempt equal EQ and parametric EQ. So, but watching that, that uh, documentary and the fact that uh, as digital came on board, they talked about the guy, uh, Dave Grohl brings out the fact that there was a guy just literally, I think not too far away that opened up a new shop and he had a computer and he began to draw away business from Sound City. They ended up closing the doors. That's when Grohl was able to, I mean, he didn't think he was going to be able to get the board that it was going, probably going to go to somebody much even bigger than Grohl. But something that stood out to me is that when you see the photographs of the venue, it was kind of run down. And yet all the albums I grew up listening to as a teenager, a lot of them were recorded there, you know, Fleetwood Mac Rumors. And, you know, those kind of acts and that thousands, I think thousands of songs that were, went to number one. And 
something that fascinates me, Bennett, is that what I think that Sound City missed and they let the digital take away is they had an enclave. And even though that 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 company, they didn't own any artists, so to speak. There was nobody in their artist stable. I don't know what term you use today. But everybody wanted to be there because of the the ambiance, the camaraderie, the community. And so Sound City, in a very real way, was a community that people connected to. That's what Muscle Shoals is to this day. Right. But what I'm hearing from you, and maybe, you know, I don't think I'm speaking anything that you don't already know or think, but I'm saying when I I listen to your energy and hear your knowledge and your skill sets, and then what's uh, we've been blessed to have come to Spring Hill, and then the stuff that I didn't know about y'all even providing uh, places for artists to have things that, you know, are important to them. They don't want to put down at the U store, you know, that you are providing that type of connection that uh, I'd think it would be amazing uh, to see uh, where you are to become an enclave to where it's like a hub. And maybe that's already how you're, it's in your purpose statement or whatever, but that sense of hub and community is missing because of the fact what you talked about, you know, my son, he has a recording studio at home, the John Smith, who is his mentor. And, you know, he still works with John, um, all the time that John just built a new studio at his house, but there's something to be said about an enclave. I don't even know if that's a word I'm looking for, you know what I'm saying to where it absolutely is community enclave camaraderie, all of it. But do you see, I mean, I don't want to superimpose that, but to me, it sounds like that's what y'all are shooting for. hundred percent. And so to me, man, that could be huge. That is huge. Uh, from a standpoint of industry survival and industry thrive, both, uh, you know, video and audio, because uh, to me, you know, it, that artists are looking for that connection. Yeah. And like you said, they can go to a, a thousand different recording studios that have, you know, two preamps and, you know, a million dollars worth of gear. But something they can't get is Bennett Moon. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Or just that and, and, and access, you know, like and people. I mean, people are. You know, and and. I love that that is how it is for me. And then there's certain, you know, like you, you ask the, you know, biologist and it's not that I don't love plants and nature and all of that. We, before the show started, we talked about our activism and concern, you know, conservation activity or, you know, loves and passions. But, you know, in, in, if I was to choose, you know, some of the richest, richest things that this world and this universe has, and it is the people within it. Um, and it goes back to like, I'm not just a people person. The, it's people I'm, I, I enjoy, I thoroughly enjoy what makes us all different and also love to discover what makes us all click or, or in a version in between that I can't ever know what any, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not naive enough to know that I could scratch the surface on meeting or just knowing somebody. But my grandmother told me, and I, and I, I'll say this, you know, to that it imprinted on me from when I was six years old. And she just said, you know, Bennett, you mustn't ever meet anyone. You must always strive for meaningful acquaintances. And while you strive for that, the world will infinitely broaden and feel small as in a good community all at the same time. And it's true. If you don't go about just saying like, oh, I met that person, I met that person. But if you if you actually like strive, it's more than just like, and believe me, names are hard, you know, I'll stumble over a name any day, but I'll never forget a face and I'll never forget an experience. 
or something that connects on that level. So a meaningful acquaintance over meeting somebody is always what I put down and put forth in my on my daily in life. And that has been a treasure to how I operate and hold myself accountable to those that count on me. Now, so you did work with Jack White both for a solo career. Yeah, yeah. And, and let me say, just, before, we, we are, I promise we're right there. Like just that, that, well, launch, that launch is uh, now we're 2018 is when I started working with Jack. <laughs> okay. And, but also let me say, and I don't need to pull the list. I, uh, Bennett could give us the, 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 the sheet, but she's worked with a multitude of world renowned uh, recording artists. And uh, so, and also traveled the world. My video has gone bad. Well, it's there, but it's real. Uh, just, just, it may be a, la a latency. Now, what I'm seeing on my screen, hang on just a minute. What I'm seeing on my screen is okay. So I hope what you, what Google's getting to the cloud is uh, not distorted because I can see you clearly. I can see myself. I can hear and see you just Oh, fine. you can see me clear. Okay. So maybe it's just your, your computer, but thank you. Uh, producer. If we need to recalibrate. I'm fine. No, that's fine. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, let's, we'll pick back up because you distorted a little bit when you're telling the, the your, what your grandmother shared with you. Oh, oh. I, want, I want that to come through clearly Yeah. and then we'll pick back up and then I'll back up out of the way and we can edit this all out of here. Uh, but I do want to, I'll leave the part, I'll, I'll, I'll edit it so that, uh, cause people need to understand, you know, I'm not tooting your horn, so to speak, but that you've worked with a lot of people by this time. Okay. So go ahead. Tell, tell me the story, you know, about what your grandmother said when you were six. Yeah. I mean, and it just, it goes, I think I was speaking more about, you know, that opportunity in 2017 that I had um, an opportunity on off the tours to work for like the VMAs, MTV Music Awards, CMT Awards, um, and Super Bowl performances. Uh, and those, those experiences really had gone from not me. I wasn't actually the engineer putting those images of the artist or, uh, or the sound through the speakers for those large events. Cause those, 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 those roles were filled by vendors, by people that had been doing it. But what I was able to do when I came in um, was, was that peak was bringing what I had learned and what I had known and how I knew how to speak to different crew members um, being the production manager, you have crew chiefs, uh, you know, audio crew chiefs, you have your lighting crew chiefs and you have to, and it's a big, you know, it's a bottleneck. It's a tree. It's a root system. You know, you have you and the a tour manager and the production manager and then promoters. And then you go out to your crew chiefs and then you trickle down for like a hundred people. But, you know, back to what made a real difference and what I had to pull from, from my childhood, when I, when I spoke about, in 2017, I realized I needed to figure out how to combine what I was naturally good at, what people were offering me more money. They were offering me way more money to manage production manage than they were to engineer way more money. And, but my, but my soul was like, Oh, I've got to be, I've done, this is what my dream was. I was going to like, I'm going to be, you know, the best female engineer or whatever it is in the world. And it's, it wasn't a, give up on a dream at all. And that's what I wanted to be so important. It wasn't a give up on it. I, I have the opportunity. I could, who knows my, I hope my life is long that I can still have dreams. I don't even know I have yet to make, but either way, that moment where I realized that what I was naturally gifted at combine it with what I was, what I studied and went into debt and struggled with and combining those 
that was where when my career shot off. And, and because of that, I pulled from my childhood what my grandmother always said. And, and, and that goes into part of, I just, I mean, I enjoy people and I work well with them. And I think it's something that you cannot study to be. <laughs> it is just a natural gift. I don't know why people gravitate to it, but I have to honor it. And it's a silly way to say a people person. That's why I try to reword it. But she told me, she said, Bennett, you mustn't ever go through life meeting anyone. You must strive to make meaningful acquaintances. And then the world shall be both large and small at the same time. And that's really important that I, you know, I'm bad with names sometimes. Everybody is, but I won't ever forget a person. And I'll definitely remember, you know, the interaction and whatnot. And, and we'll figure out the names after that. Right. But it's, it's striving to make, if you strive and go into something that you're not just like, Oh, it's like these, you know, these big award parties, right. You're going to meet a thousand people. (laughs) So you get over, you know, there are people that get overwhelmed and that's okay. It's it's okay. You know, but for me knowing and pep talking oneself before going into that, it's like, no, I'm not meeting these people. I'm not meeting them. I'm I'm going to make, I'm going to make some meaningful, I'm not meeting them. I am going to make meaningful acquaintances and making that a reality only oneself can do. You can't go to school for that. You can't be taught that no one can hold your hand through that. You as a person have to make those connections. Just like Kenny, you reached out to me and you were lovely from the bat. I didn't know anything about what you had going on. But because of your, your proprietary, um, you know, emotions, right? Like you're that clicked and that's what you put off. That's your meaningful acquaintance is immediately making it meaningful for the other person, AKA me that I hadn't heard, you know, you know, and, and is humble enough to be like, oh, I don't know who wants to hear me talk for any time, but you know, your, your meaningfulness with what you're passionate about spoke through without you needing to do much. And I was on board and that's, that is, that can be copy and pasted, copy and pasted it throughout anybody's career, not just you or me, but it's about making meaningful acquaintances or meaningful motions in one's life. Well, so then, um, you already have some connection with Jack White, yeah, yeah, which I, I both respect. Uh, so tell me about that among all of the uh, musical artists and stars and, you know, however you want to say it, people that yeah. are, are being successful. How did that click and, and what was your or has been your involvement there? So uh, end of 2017, I had uh, worked in uh, I had really. 2017 was an amazing year for me to make connections with people, not just like crew, but uh, everywhere in the industry. And there is an uh, an awesome entertainment lawyer in Atlanta named Matt Wilson. And he spoke at a ton of uh, like South by Southwest panels about entertainment lawyers, right? Like that's a big thing. Like, hey, like there's a, there's people, nerds like me. And then there's other people in the music industry, like lawyers that are making it so that artists still can pay their bills. So Love, love those entertainment lawyers. His name's Matt Wilson. And Matt Wilson and I had been on a panel together about something and we had known each other. And, and also I had done work for him in other ways, uh, through our, his artists and that were, that he was representing. And he called me and he was like, I know you're with moon taxi. I know you've got all these other things. 
what are you looking to do for the next couple of years? And I kind of just was like, I don't know. Like, what do you, he's like, are, he's like, do you think that you're ready to go on an international tour? And I was like, I suppose I could be. <laughs> and it was really hush hush. It was like, I didn't, he said, well, I'm going to connect you with a production manager. And that guy's name is uh, also, I mean, I, I owe him so much. Uh, Kit Blanchard is his name. And, uh, and he is based out of Atlanta and this man had had done Jack's 2014 Lazaretto tour, uh, but and then but Kit had also just he's been in the industry for so long. He uh, a great dad and a great husband, but also did Jack Johnson's world tour, LCD sound system. Uh, I, I mean, an incredible career and 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 resume. And he had been hired again to do Jack's solo tour. Uh, so Jack usually does a tour every, a major solo tour every four years. So you had 2011, then you had 2014 Lazaretto. And that was really Jack's first, you know, big solo set. And then 2018 came along and you have boarding house reach and, but nobody knew that at that time, nobody knew. Uh, and it was just Matt Wilson, the lawyer said, I'm going to connect you. Will you have lunch with this guy? That's a production manager in Atlanta. He wants to, he's looking for a production coordinator, which is when you go to, when you get a hundred people on a tour, it's too much for two people, the, the production manager and the tour manager to do. So there's a, there's a position called a production coordinator. Um, and that is like the two realms, the tour side, the production side, the venues, they need a liaison in the middle within the team. And then that person, that person sources out the crew the vendors, the audio, the lighting and everything. So this production manager, Kit Blanchard, he and I have lunch and he can't like the whole lunch. It is, I, I have no idea who he's, and he can't, he already said, he's like, I, I'm, he's like, I, I'm not really interested. He's like, I'm not really allowed to tell you who, who it is, but I just wanted to, you know, he asked me questions, asked me some of the things, asked me what I, you know, like, and just how, cause he and I would be running the tour of like a hundred plus people all over the world. And so we had to vibe, you know, there's a, 35 year age difference between us, you know, all that. And we clicked immediately. And, um, and I mean, <laughs> I remember driving home, to, uh, after that. And like, I had, I mean, this is how silly it was. I had hugged him because I thought he was going in for a hug. Like literally I thought I had blown the interview because he actually was going to get something. It was like that classic movie scene. And I have, I don't think I'd even ever had that happen, but I remember calling like, you know, my mom or something like that and being like, Oh, I'm totally not going to get this gig. I thought he was hugging me goodbye, which would have been fine. And I went in for the hug, but he was actually bending down to get, uh, to get something. And I just, just thought it was. And so we awkwardly hugged and I was like, Oh, well, this is never going to happen. And sure enough, he called me the next day and he said, uh, you know, he said, I'd like to offer you the position. And after I signed the p paperwork, uh, he said, it's going to be Jack White's solo tour. And we went, I mean, we went everywhere from Russia to South America, to Australia, Japan, Asia. I mean, yeah, I, I, I went to Moscow or I went, a, I actually went ahead a week. I actually did seven days in Moscow with like four of my best crew guys, uh, before the tour even started because, well, why not? We already had the visas. We already had the things. And so, I, I mean, I don't think even, I mean, I, I hope that my own children might be able to go visit Russia someday. 
after everything's said and done and, or after everything, hopefully, but I mean, I, I look at it now and I'm like, I'm, you know, I may never in my lifetime be able to go back to Russia. Who knows? Uh, and I was able to do that. And it's just an amazing opportunity. He basically, this Jack white guy knew, recognized my name after the production manager had met me and, and was like, I know that I know that I, I know that name. Cause Jack has like a thing about colors, like all of his solo tours, all black, blue, his obviously the white stripes are all white and red. His uh, his raconteur stuff is all green, copper, gold, uh, or not gold, but green and copper and orange. And then all of the dead weather stuff, which is the other project he has, is all yellow and black. And he's he's such an artist that it is incredible on how he has themes. And technically, because my my last name is Moon. And if you look at Lazaretto's tour and you look at the album artwork from 2014's Lazaretto, it's him in a graveyard and there's a big moon above it. And if you look at the YouTube videos on any of like the shows, they carried around a huge, I mean, this was before my time, you know, they carried around a huge moon as a set piece every show. And so the fact that like, I remember when we finally did meet Jack and I to face to face, uh, he said, he said, you know, I mean, I think the first thing was, is like, he said, ah, so you're Bennett Moon. So you're going to be the moon that I haven't had as of yet. And I hope you're going to make sure that you look out for us. And I go, you can count on it. That I tell you, that is amazing. And uh, wow, what a what a tribute to you that they put that kind of trust in you. Saw that type of uh, potential skill sets in you. And uh, I had to learn a lot. Well, man, I can tell you, I winged, I winged some things. Oh, I can like. Oh, I got my, I remember one time I, I got my phone stolen literally out of my pocket, just trying to keep the crowds from rushing Jack just had, I had all my radios here, right? Like, you know, I have like a big tactical vest. I have to have like tons of radios. And I guess just in the heat of everything, I, my pocket was there and I had my phone stolen out of my pocket. Now, where was that? That was in Paris. That was in Paris. Well, that sounds like, Paris. I mean, I'm, yeah. I know, I know, but it was one yeah. of those things. I, I've never been there, but uh, one thing, you know. My dad uh, was a world traveler, and he actually uh, got connected when he was in in France with uh, real gypsies. And my son, uh, when he was young, my dad was sitting at the table one night telling him about the night that he danced with the gypsies. You know, the real gypsies, not the Romanian ones. Like yes, Russian and ones. but they're very they're very good at uh, pickpocketing, pickpocketing. But uh, yes. so you're so y'all were performing in in Paris, I guess, right? Yeah, at the uh, La Olympia, which is one of the most historic venues, uh, in Europe. I mean, it's, it's older. It's, I mean, it was on the, it is on the site of like one of the Roman Colosseums. Um, but, uh, it, it's an incredible venue. And, and the way that, you know, sometimes with Jack, like we would play, you know, 30,000 plus venues. Right. But then we'd also, because he really, I mean, I, I know I, and I, it's not that I, no one needs to defend Jack White because he, it speaks for himself, but, in some ways, I I find myself in that protection mode of like, because he is so particular and some people think that he can come off as like, and he's so funny. So his dry humor can also be sarcastic. But anyway, he, he has a, he, you know, he has a very particular way that if somebody, if like a promoter or a venue like offered him and Meg White in the White Stripes back in the 90s, right, when nobody, it was a two-piece band. Nobody heard of these young 19-year-olds out of Detroit, and nobody cared to. How can you put on a show with a chick on drums and a dude on guitar? 
but na 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 na. You know, like that was yeah, all the all the college bands now. That's their. Oh, I mean, I mean, not just college. I mean, it's like well, it, right. it's FIFA. I mean, FIFA. You know, world. You know, worldwide. That's their theme song. But or and you know mo- now it's like uh you know up there with Queen. You know, we we will rock you. You know, I mean, it's just you know what as like a as like a monumental sports arena humming song but uh jack you know it is so is so particular and what he ha- did do and a lot of people would be like why is jack playing at that venue because it's smaller he know he's you know and it, and it's almost like people get mad because he picked a venue that was smaller than like what he really could have sold out but it all depends on like he will he will always go back to somebody that gave him a chance during the white stripes and even if these, I mean, I remember hearing some of these guys in the room when we were settling shows, like saying like, man, if we didn't have this show this year, I don't think we would have been able to clear into the green, you know, like just because it, with the way that, you know, since the time of white stripes to where Jack is now, they'd been sort sourced out. Like they, they just, these promoters were just losing their business. They aren't able to keep up with live nation and AEG, you know? And these promote these small, you know, these small city pr- promoters, like there was a place in Cleveland, like this guy was struggling so much to just because he can't compete with Ticketmaster. You know, it's just like the all in 360 deals of ticket sales, concessions, all of that. I mean, he was priced out and Jack chose out of the way in the harder way. And he went and worked with that promoter and gave that promoter the business because that promoter gave him and Meg White a chance when nobody else would give him a single spot to play in Cleveland. And that guy did. And Jack gave it right back to him. Now, so then, but then you also worked with one of his, um, um, tours. Yeah. The rack, you know, what would you call it? Not emanations, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. One of his personas in the rack on tour. Yeah. The iteration. Uh, so what was your role there with the rack on tours? Same thing. Same. I did. I, well, production manager. Yeah. Well, production coordinator and, and, and really, it was uh, a lot of the same crew from his solo tour because he went right in from 2018 to 2019 to, and we wrapped up our last show was like January or 2020, like right before 2020. And then, so we went, I went, we did almost four years of touring uh, basically uh, just from the way that, you know, you would take, you know, Jack, everybody needs a break. Like Jack is singing I mean, all of those songs for hours on it, and he has no set lists either. That's a, I that's, love that. It's amazing. I, 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 to, <laughs> I've, I've worked with some amazing, talented people, and I don't know anybody that has a discography as deep as Jack's that does not do a set list ever. How he's able to not repeat a song in one night after playing nine shows in a row and just know that nope, I've already. I'm not going to play that one song that I always play at some point in the show. But I'm going to play it in the beginning this this time. And I'm going to play it at the end and this time, and then not get confused which time he did it. You know, I mean, in the band, and I have to give the credit to you know his band members. I mean, I mean, for at least for his solo stuff, it's always uh, Dominic Davis is on bass, and Dominic and him grew up in Detroit together. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, and Dominic Davis is a local. <laughs> Well, I mean, he's obviously from Michigan, but him and his wife, Rachel, um, are also uh, in their own rights musicians here. They live in Nashville. Um, Dominic actually has been playing uh, bass for Jason Isbell. Um, but Dominic and Jack, at age 10 years old, started playing in their garage together. So 
So, so it takes a lot of Jack's band to also understand his cues. And like Jack is always communicate, like turns around. There's a separate mic that's not through the PA system that he goes to, to talk on just that's going straight into the ears of everybody on stage and us crew for what he wants played. Um, if he's not, if, if everyone on stage, which his band is so talented, well, already should know what he wants played because of what the strings and the motions that he's playing. But he also will go into it being like, hey, we're going to play this and then I'm going to quickly go into this. And he'll say that really fast and he'll make it like nobody is the wiser on like out in the crowd. Like nobody will know uh, that he's just had like a three second conversation with everybody that what's going to happen. And then he explodes into it. And, you know, everyone's having the best night of their life and seeing the best show of their entire lifetime. And I will tell you that every day it was so, I mean, I worked 80, 90 hours a week. I mean, it, I mean, it was sometimes, you know, you're loading out. I mean, it's, it's 11 semi trucks. It's, you know, you're going to the next city. I, you know, I have to, most of the time it's me. I, it, you need to be on the ground until the last truck doors close because I'm sending the paperwork with every truck driver for like the tolls. Like if we're going, over a border, you know, it's the manifest, the cartage, and then we're getting up and going to six 30 and loading in again. And, um, I mean, it is, it is, it is a lot of work, but the cup of coffee that I didn't ingest every night. And I will tell you this is when I, when I go around and put, uh, the like stage towels and waters where they need to be on stage, that was one thing that I did never entrusted anybody with it. That was always me. That was like my connect of like making sure that my band, the band members were taken care of. And, um, you know, and it's just when you walk out on stage and like there was one festival um, in Europe, it, it's in Belgium. It's called Rock Werchter. Uh, Werchter is a like W-E-R-C-T-E-R. But anyway, it's a it's a place in Belgium and it's one of Europe's largest festivals. So we were in front of 80, 80 to 100,000 people. And there is nothing that is quite like the whites of those people's eyes of a hundred thousand people just always looking at whoever walks on stage. It wasn't just, <laughs> I mean, it was me, but you know, anybody's going to be like, Oh, is that them? Is that the band? You know, but I mean, all of those people there and had been there for hours standing in the heat, the rain, whatever it is to see, hopefully they're the best night of music of their entire lives. And it is such a huge honor to do that. And it's so precious to know how important every bit from the waters to like, you know, making sure that the stuff above your head is not going to come crashing down. All of those are so important and all of those have to be done to have that moment for those people out in the crowd to see the best night of music that they've ever seen in their life. And you'll get, and I, it's the best cup of coffee, no matter how tired I am, if I can walk out on stage before a show is about to start, I won't need coffee for the rest of the night. You know, it's just, it's that impactful and that special. You mentioned in, at the beginning of the conversation that you had been out of town work, doing some work. And I'm curious that in your relationship with uh, worldwide stages here in Spring Hill, uh, are you um, heavily, I mean, can you still have some mobility to do things or you know, what's your, uh, where are you now as far as in all of that? Yeah. Great question too, because that would make sense. After the two years that it really took to turn over that building to get it as it is now that it can take any kind of production that it needs, um, that needs to come in. 
and I have trained and put in place, uh, you know, the boots on the ground, right. Boots on the ground that I feel like I can, you know, and, and also with just systems, right. Like at this point, I should have, you know, that's enough time to know what it's like when you advance a show or advance a production, what they need, and to disseminate that information to the people that I have trusted and trained through the hard times and the not on how to make that facility function. So those people are are able to take what I, you know, do or or what what they can also pick up in advance. Um and, and, and take as of the production. And those people, depending on how high level it is, um, I've worked all the CMT stuff and all that, but like some of the little stuff, you know, like just a music video here and there or commercial or whatnot, those people that are there that, you know, I, I chose about, I don't know how long ago it was, but, um, I did, after I got it up and running, I, I, I got a little, I, I, I got, after I got it all where it needed to be, you know, I needed, I, I personally wanted after the pandemic and all of that, you know, I did, I wanted, I had been saying no to a lot of projects. And once I finally got it to where it was, I had the ability to say, maybe I'm not full time all this time. I can go and do this and, you know, we can figure out how that works, but I won't ever leave them hanging. Right. I will be there for everything that they need, but I also have the ability to take on some other, uh, projects, passion projects, um, that I am, I'm very, uh, very blessed to do. And so more recently, full circle here, I'm glad you asked full circle, even with worldwide, I was doing so much, both literally connecting cables but also being in a boardroom talking about how millions of dollars should be, you know, to be funded or like how, how much things will cost from like the couch in the lobby that has nothing to do with the production spaces or really me, but like how the budgets go and like all that stuff. And I, you know, I just, you know, I, I, I looked around the room and there was enough people there that I felt that this place that I was, I'm so passionate about was in good hands and I needed to do some things of my own. Um, I lost my dad, you know, during the pandemic. And there were some things that I wanted to do that I promised him I'd do. Um, I To go, you know, see some things and, you know, for, you know, for personal reasons. And I was able and have been able to do that. But mostly I've been working for M3 Technology, which is a company out of Nashville that builds audiovisual. Um, I'll send you the link too for it. So if anybody uh, is looking for a vendor of, um, you know, both, just anything that has to any like corporate or studio, right? Like you need, if you need speakers in place, if you're, if you're looking to put Crestron, which is like basically a high tech Google meets in these boardrooms, um, then somebody needs to be in there to install the speakers in the ceiling and do these huge, uh, huge system, basically cabinets, right? Patch bays of like how, from the data cables, the cat sixes and the cat fives come through the ceiling and then they go into these data closets and then how we pull those into these big uh, power supplies that will keep the, basically the company running and, you know, all, all it's very technical and I miss doing some of that. And so I've done, that was the gig that I did uh, at the beginning or, and I have been doing several gigs for them. And it's really just back to my roots. It is just pure. I don't deal with people. I am just, you give me, I put on my tactical vest 
I put on, you know, I get my 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 rubber or my rubber sole steel toed boots. Uh, I get my I get all my tool my tools on me, and I just look at a big schematic and all of the different tie lines, and I just start cutting into walls with a with you know with a jigsaw and uh, and 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 we start running cables, and then we then we leave it to another construction crew to patch it back up. Well, I know we need to be careful maybe if I ask this, but do you see yourself, would you ever go back on the road again? I'm still close with all the third men. And I, and I, I yeah, you know, for Jack, I hands down do it. Uh, and, you know, luckily when I, when I took the job at Worldwide, we, we talked like there, he was going out to do, uh, you know, the supply chain, uh, the supply chain chore, supply chain was before. And that happened in 2021 and 2022. And, you know, I had already accepted my position. I, I, I waited out and, you know, I had, I wanted, I was too involved with knowing that I needed to be at worldwide because I mean, it, not only did I love what the vision was and know it was so important, but my grandmother was on the, the Murray County, um, business board, business development board. That's that sealed the deal with GM in 1985 for that plant. So you know, it was like, this is trickling down. Why else would I have, you know, been? Well, there you go. Exactly. (laughs) You know, to, to be a part of bringing this big monolith of a building that had just been going into decay to bring it into something where it's not just going to be torn down and leveled. It's preserved. It's, it's gone. It's, it's brought it to its new life form. And so I did, I did, you know, I did have to say no one time. Um, but honestly, Jack, understood completely and i knew i needed to do that then so yeah i would totally go back out on tour if it's for the right for the for the passion that i that that i would see um and then you know there's there's so much there's so much that is out there that you know i'm excited about what is to come well i tell you what i could there could be a whole series of conversations with bennett moon uh because i mean even talking about you know working with a hundred thousand people and just the logistics of that, the mentality of that, um, that in itself could be, you know, an hour show. So uh, hopefully at some point we can come back around and do this again. Uh, but I tell you, Bennett, I, I, for some reason, I just, the Lord let me know from the beginning that uh, it was going to be a cool ride talking to Bennett Moon. And uh, it, it has been a thrill. And so I want to thank you so much for being on the show and, uh, look forward to hearing people's responses and uh, I'm praying, you know, for the inspiration to all people who are looking to move forward in things that they're passionate about. And there's so many naysayers and so many people to shoot down our visions and our dreams. And yet uh, I've been super inspired uh, personally uh, from your story. And so thank you so much for being on other things with Bennett Moon. Thank you so much for having me. And it has been an honor and a pleasure.